Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Unscrubbed. I hope you all are having a fantastic July. It was so wonderful to see so many of you in balmy Palm Springs a few weeks ago. You know, my flights were canceled and then delayed and then canceled and then delayed en route. So I was only on site for maybe 15 minutes, but it was still incredibly soul-filling to see so many of you. Now, on this week's episode, we have a very special guest who many of you know, and that is Shannon Cohn. Shannon is a film producer and a fierce advocate for endometriosis. She is a producer and director of the documentary Endo What, with a second film coming out this fall titled Below the Belt. On part one of this two-part episode, Shannon opens up about her journey from international law into the graduate film program at NYU, where she finds her creativity, and how her time in West Africa shaped her future. We hope you enjoy. All right. So we are so incredibly excited to welcome Shannon Cohn to our Unscrubbed episode today. She is an absolutely amazing human, has done such incredible things through her journey of advocacy work within endometriosis. And we're just so thrilled to have you, Shannon. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So I want to start out by talking about your journey a little bit. So I know you grew up in rural Mississippi and eventually went to Vanderbilt to get your law degree and then went into practicing international law. And then you made this really interesting and crucial pivot into documentary filmmaking. Can you tell me a little bit about your headspace during this transition? Oh, wow. My headspace. That's a good question. <laughs> Are you sure we want to go there so early? In this <laughs> I know. I know. No dinner beforehand. I'm just jumping right in. Right? Right. Um, you know, I think it's that transition. I think so many of us, especially listeners to this, you know, there are a lot of type, type A personalities probably out there where we go through life, especially as we go through, you know, secondary school, primary school, secondary school into college. And we're almost like checking a list of accomplishments. Like we do this check, we do this check, you know, and we're, you know, we're just kind of cruising through life and we're doing well at those things and we just keep going. So law school just I never really thought about it. It was just kind of one of these things that, oh, my dad thought, thought, thought one day, oh, you know, I think you could be, you know, you should be a lawyer. You know, one of those things like, oh, right, that sounds really interesting. I could go to law school. I, I like school. I like learning. Right. Um, so why not why not do more of it? Um, so I did, and I did enjoy law school at Vanderbilt, and I thought it was a really amazing university, a great community, have a lot of really wonderful friends there, and I actually loved learning about law. And then when I went to practice, I went to practice at a giant law firm. I was in Atlanta at, at this law firm office. I mean, I think there were like 400 attorneys just in the Atlanta office alone. And I went into practice international law, which was perfect for me because I was an international business major in college and loved traveling. And that really gave me a great opportunity to that. I found out I passed the bar, I think at the end of October, and they had me in Amsterdam two weeks later working on different cases. So um, that was amazing and fun. So our law firm was retained by the Justice Department to help in the Enron investigation. And I got put on that investigation. And it was fascinating and absolutely insane. <laughs> and um, they worked us really hard, you know, for a couple of years where my whole yeah. life was the Enron investigation. And, and it was it was it's once in a lifetime opportunity, absolutely. But at the end of it, when we were closing the investigation, I needed to step back for a bit uh, because you know we, as we all do, we reach this point where we hit a wall and we're really burned out. 
and just for our own kind of sanity, need to step back and look at things. So, which is what I did. And I, I traveled for a bit, kind of went on a leave of absence. And I ended up in Africa and worked in refugee camps in West Africa. And it was kind of there that I realized for sure that I didn't necessarily want to go back into working in an office, for example, uh, whether it was practicing law or other things. I actually considered doing foreign service. And, but also working in African refugee camps, I saw what the people doing foreign service were doing. And it was really amazing, valuable, important work. But it's hard work. It's really hard work. And I'm not scared of hard work, but. I started realizing that in order to see change in an issue, I wanted to tell stories that could move the issue forward in a different way. So that's when the idea of film school kind of entered my mind, just because I wanted to say, okay, how can we tell people that these things in the world are going on that mainstream media is not covering? But how can we shine a light on it in a big way? All these people are in the trenches working really hard, but maybe there's another channel that we could, that I that may be possible even for me. You know, maybe I had never, I'd never filmed anything. So it was kind <laughs> of, it was kind of crazy that uh, I went to NYU because like I said, I'd never filmed it, filmed anything, but it was kind of, I actually called them and said, you know, I've never filmed anything, but I would love to come to film school. What do you suggest? Because in the application, you have to share a film. This is for the graduate film program at NYU. And I was told, well, if you don't want to do that, send a picture, send 10 pictures and tell a story with the pictures. So I was like, okay, I can do that. I can take pictures. Wow. So I drove around Mississippi by myself for about a week into the Delta and into these real, really rural areas and just told a, a story of Mississippi. Uh, and I selected 10 pictures and sent them in. Of course, I had to do writing samples and different things like that. And then crazily enough, they let me in. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I went to, I went to school. Um, like one of 35 in my class. It, interestingly enough, I was the only lawyer, like former lawyer coming in, but there was a former MD coming in as well. And he had been working in New York mainly, and he, I'm remembering, he was mainly an ER doc. I mean, he was he was not even 30 yet, so he was also very new, and you know, was practice medicine for maybe a year or two, and then decided, you know, that's not for me. Let's do something different. And he was in my film school class of 36 people. It was it was fascinating. So with with NYU, when we, I, I had no idea. It was a fa it was a very sharp learning curve to learn how to tell these stories. But I always knew from the very beginning, I didn't necessarily necessarily want to write fiction. Like I didn't really want to write scripts and make those kind of movies. And those are fascinating. And I love watching them and binging them on Netflix. But that's not really what I wanted to do. Because I knew there were so many stories out in the world that were true, and that needed attention, that I wanted to shine a light on. And that's what I wanted to dedicate my professional and sometimes personal life to, to doing. So that's kind of how my headspace was. Did I answer your question? I kind of went on for a bit, but hopefully I answered your question. Oh my God. I am so in love with this journey. And yeah, you answered it. I want to unpack so much of that. So I can we can all relate on the surgeon end of getting into the grind, right? And just doing like the next thing that's in line without really taking the space to reflect if it you know, is meeting our needs in a million ways, right? From a personal development or a professional development or you know, um, all those different ways. 
And it takes so much courage to be like, wait, this isn't exactly what I want to be. I've dedicated all this time and maybe this isn't the right fit for me. Talk to me about how, like, where, where did you get the courage for this transition? Like, where do you think in your upbringing that you really got this like grit or this tenacity or this courage? You know, I heard in one of your TED talks that you're, you were raised primarily by your father. Talk to me about where you think you got this type of, uh, this courage. Wow. That's, that's a great question. You know, I think it just, maybe I was just that burned out, honestly, or maybe I it just, it was just so intense for so long. And I just, when I had an opportunity to, to step back, I was so much happier. You know, I think that with personalities probably like ours and so many people listening, it's like you just keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And only in, when you're forced because of exhaustion or some life experience forces you to take that step back and you do take that breath and you start considering life that doesn't necessarily keep going in that race and what that would look like. And you start thinking outside that paradigm completely there's a shift that happens. And I just felt like I could breathe. And I just felt so much happier. And of course, my father was terrified because I was stepping away from a, a, you know, a very lucrative career that as a 20 something was paying me six figures. You know what I mean? It was, it was hard, but at the same time, I mean, I, I have a very modest upbringing. And I knew that I could be happy with, and with modest means I didn't necessarily need all of that. Yeah, it was fun, but I didn't need all of that to be happy at all. I will share one small anecdote. I remember I was coming to Atlanta one day at at work and I I would usually ride my bike to to work because I lived in Midtown and Atlanta traffic is notoriously terrible. So I would ride my bike to kind of go around all of that. And I remember like chaining up my bike and I hadn't changed out of my tennis shoes yet. I would a lot of times wear like, you know, shorts or tennis shoes and then go change when I, when I got into work, depending on, and I got in the elevator and I remember it was very stern (laughs) people looking at me, you know, with a frown, Uh, totally not outside the box thinking, right? Like, I'm just like, chill, give me like five minutes and I'm going to be the perfect lawyer, you know, like, but I also (laughs) remember standing in the elevator (laughs) Um, and there was a, a young associate talking to an older partner in the law firm that I knew both of them, but I was just quietly listening, talking about, you know, what that they, they, they bought this house and they have this car and their children are in this very, you know, uh, fancy private school and having this very, you know, conversation about it. And all of those things are fine. But at the same time, I'm like, wait a second, is that what I want to be really as like the most important thing to me in 30 years? I mean, I just didn't, and yeah. I knew the sacrifices I would have to make that became my, my most important thing. Um, and I just yeah. remember feeling this discomfort that I wanted to make a life that was something that I could put it to, to more than that somehow so that my focus and my hope and, you know, even my hope for my own children could be something outside of that kind of paradigm. And... Uh, I mean, I have a lot of friends that live very happily inside that paradigm and I don't begrudge them at all. I don't want that to come across that way. I just had a split with, as I was standing there and they were looking at me disapprovingly, I remember thinking, I don't belong here. Something doesn't, is not computing. I, I can't identify exactly what that was, but I knew it wasn't, I, was, I wasn't on the right path. Wow. 
That's that's so powerful, right? That you had that self-reflection and you knew your authentic self enough to to even recognize that emotion in your belly that was like this this isn't where I want to be in 30 years. Like that success isn't necessarily my success. So huge congratulations, Shannon. That's that's just incredible. Maybe. So <laughs> Maybe. yeah, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I just I can relate so much. I really can. I um I tend to walk or run to work. So every time I get to work, I'm really sweaty. And I had I had a meeting with somebody and they saw me similarly and they're like, Wow, I've never seen you like this before. And I was like, What? It's just me. I'm just a little sweatier. It's okay. I'll just like you said, I'll be changed in five minutes. I'll be the, the perfect surgeon and just give me like 10 minutes. So I can so relate to that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so good. All right. So I want to shift into this force of creativity. So I am just fascinated by the force of creativity because I think it truly permeates all fields. You know, we often correlate creativity in fields like yours, such as filmmaking or dance or really within the arena of art. But I'd say even in the operating room, creativity, I think, is really what takes a surgeon to that next level. And so my question for you is, where do you find your creativity or where do you feel most creative? Hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> where do I find my creativity? I find it by myself. I'm an only child. So I find it as I, when I have the opportunity to kind of go inward and to just take away the inner boundaries that I have that I think so many of us have. You know, we're like going back to that checklist and like, you know, we've got the blinders on, we keep going and keep going. And when we are kind of brave enough or open enough to kind of take the blinders off, then, you know, your world can kind of explode in a really, you know, uh, enlightening and powerful way. And another way is I really always try to surround myself with a lot of different types of people who think in many different ways. And that could be totally opposite ends of the political spectrum. I have friends who are ultra conservative and we get along and we laugh and we are, you know, together in this uh, fun and constructive way. Also, I have friends who are, you know, uber liberal and we, you know, interact in the same way. I try to find common ground with everyone. And I find that when we can find that common humanity, for example, then we can learn, you know, and I learn from all of these kind of relationships and what they bring. And they open up different parts, you know, in my mind in a lot of ways. And I can kind of start going through that. And I guess creativity in that way is kind of connected to humanity in a way. We, you know, see and honor the creativity in, in each other, but also the humanity in each other. And I feel like that's really powerful. And I try to capture that a lot in, in the work that I do with film. And, you know, that's also very helpful in a courtroom. Yes, I could see how all of the skills that you learned in law school have actually been very applicable to your, to this newfound, you know, filmmaking passion. So I can see how there's so much uh, synergy between those two things. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think, yeah, like you said, in every field, there's creativity in every field, there's, there's a humanity, if we let ourselves go there and feel it. So 
Absolutely. Beyond learning how to write contracts and negotiate contracts, which is very helpful in film, of course, as I'm producing and negotiating deals and and moving forward with that, the, the practical side is incredibly helpful. But also, you know, learning how to look at people and to make persuasive arguments. And a lot of times when you make, for example, in a courtroom, it's just connecting with people in a very human way. And being honest and authentic. And that's what we all kind of recognize in each other, that authenticity, because we recognize when someone's not being authentic, you know, with us. And that's what I try to look for in people that, you know, that have that kind of openness and honesty and authenticity. I love that. And you're making me dive right. My brain is going wild. I'm diving right into my next question, if that's all right, because you're just, you're, you're, you're striking me so deeply. So, and with, with, within your films, you know, the people you feature are absolutely incredible. And I love that you're truly giving them a platform to tell their story. Now, when you do this, you, ha- you have to create this really psychologically safe space, right? To allow people to tell their authentic story. And when you're allowing these people to be truly vulnerable, that's where the magic happens, right? Can you talk to me about how, how do you create this space, right? You've got these cameras and you're having these discussions. Like, how do you create this space for people to really feel vulnerable with you? You know, it really depends on the person. Uh, I try to have a conversation with the person off camera first and get a feel for their comfort level with the camera in front of them. And if they're a bit re- more reticent at first, and then we probably would meet maybe one or two times before I would stick a camera in their face. But there are also some people who are just ready to tell their story. <laughs> um, and much like, you know, a podcast like this, you know, I just say, look, this isn't live. This is, you are allowed. There's no right mm-hmm. answer. There's no wrong answer. It just is, you know, like this is the reality, this is your truth, and this is a safe space for you to speak it. I make sure that they understand that and try to make them laugh a little bit because I like to laugh. I mean, you know, some things aren't funny, but we can all find humor in something. And I kind of have a dark, like a dark humor sometimes where just like ridiculous things make me laugh. And I can usually, if I can get someone laughing in a way, it breaks the ice. (laughs) That's very helpful. But Yes. I mean, you know, especially with a field like these films with endometriosis, which I'm sure we'll get into, where I feel a great responsibility to the people who have shared their stories with me and allowed me into their lives in this very intimate way. And a lot of times into the most painful part of their lives. And that's things like, you know, the experience of infertility, and being there with someone when they miscarry, for example, and what that is like and how deeply painful that is. But when they let me into that space, not only physical space, but emotional space, then I feel that responsibility and that weight, and I take it very seriously. And uh, especially when, for example, for this the upcoming film we're doing, which is Below the Belt, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute, Um, that follows four women with endometriosis over a number of years. So I had hundreds of hours of footage, and I feel great responsibility to get their story right. With humor, I cannot put enough emphasis on humor as well. You know, I'm a gynecologist. I can make vagina jokes like all day long. And I think that actually is really helpful, right? Like even for us surgeons, when we sit down in a room with our patients, like I can, I can hang with the best and I have all brothers. So I can, I can absolutely hang with the best. But 
you know, even as surgeons, we have to like form this really tight relationship with our patients right off the bat. So I can absolutely understand how that psychologically safe space, I mean, it's really important for patients to really open up with us as well. So I really value your insight and how to make that happen. And um, sometimes it takes a few visits or a little bit of time, but I agree. It's such an honor to be pulled into the, into our patients' world, right? All the experiences they've been through are just so intense. And it's such an honor for us to be part of that that journey with them. Yeah. And I understand that. And, you know, it takes a certain amount of being a willingness to be vulnerable on the physician side as well and my side, because when you are trying to find that connect with the, you know, the other party in that way, you kind of, you have to make yourself vulnerable and you have to go to kind of an emotional place because you become that, you know, let, you know, you're still a professional, but you're going toward the personal side and the more personal, you know, emotions uh, to try to connect with the patient. And that can be scary. And especially when, you know, those buttons, those emotional buttons are pushed all the time. But at the same time, I feel I found that it's incredibly fulfilling. And that's why we do what we do. You know, you're talking about where you find your creativity. A lot of it is talking with people outside your field. Could not agree more, right? I think a lot of times we get so siloed that we are all thinking the same exact way. And so changing that lens up can be just incredibly powerful. Another thing that I love is just change location, right? And I mean like traveling. And I know you have this in your heart as well. It's what really was the catalyst to a lot of your life decisions. So I know you have this as well. But I also love traveling. And like in between fellowship, my real job, we took three months off. My husband and I had a backpack. We went to like Norway and Denmark and Sweden and Iceland and had nothing and just camp and biked and hiked. And I, I, you are in my heart when you say, I just had to get out. Like I went to Africa and I just needed to get, needed to get out. Tell me what pulled you to Africa specifically. Like why? Because I, I feel like that's that was kind of, like I said, the catalyst that made a lot of these decisions for you. What about Africa pulled you there? Wow. Africa is a magical place. You know, even when I was, I have, I can't pinpoint exactly what memory, but it's always kind of been in my, in the back of my mind, this place called Africa. I just thought it was fascinating. Everything about it. Just, I just always wanted to go there more than any other place. And then when I when I finished with the Enron investigation, this opportunity came up to go work with a, an NGO um, and refugees and work in concert with Doctors Without Borders and with the UNHCR on these refugee camps doing different initiatives. So it just seemed perfect and interesting. And I had to go, you know, work in a, you know, in, in a, in a camp. And um, one of only a few Westerners of a, of a refugee camp, for example, when I first landed, about 50,000 refugees, mainly from Liberia, some from Sierra Leone. And I remember getting off the plane and there's just a feeling um, there, like there's a smell, there's a, a feeling in the air that is just different. And it just, it's very visceral and I just felt like, yes, you know, I, I need to be here. There's something for me to do here, you know, and the work I did was very meaningful, but crazily enough, I met my husband there. I love this so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, it's so funny because I was, you know, when they always say like, when you meet your, your husband or your wife or whomever, like you're never going to expect it. You won't be looking for it. And as someone in my late twenties, you know, and I was just like, when am I not going to be looking for this? I don't understand. <laughs> like I'm a single woman. Like I'm always like, oh, well, you know, he's cute or he's cute. Oh, he's interesting. Yeah. So when would 
not be, it just didn't make sense. But I can honestly say when I was in there, like working there, I was not looking for, I did not think that I would be finding my my spouse, but I, crazily enough, and I'll share this story. So I w- had to go back to, to New York because NYU, and they were trying to track me down actually to do an interview, but I was in this refugee camp with no phone service. And very sporadic email. And I hadn't checked my email in like two weeks. And they had emailed me several times saying, okay, I guess you're not interested anymore. Like we're not hearing from you. So I literally paid someone in the camp to use a cell phone to call them and say, actually, I am interested. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm a little strained situation with very spotty communication, but I would love to, you know, to do this interview. And so I was flying back to New York and literally the least expensive way was through South Africa. And I was in Cape Town for three days. And the first night I was there, my husband was staying in the same hostel. Stop it. What are the chances of that happening? That is wild. You see, he was there working in Africa. He's Argentine, my husband. And he was there uh, based out of Cape Town. And he was leading overland tours, which are like safari tours, not hunting tours, but kind of when you take a group of people around the suburbs of Africa. And, you know, when you go in these hostels around the world, you know, you have like, you know, six, eight bunk beds in a room. He was in another bunk bed and he talked me into going out and I was exhausted. And at first I said, I remember thinking like, this is probably not appropriate for this podcast. I'm just <laughs> I love you. it. No, this is perfect. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh my goodness, he's really cute, but I am so exhausted. <laughs> I cannot get out of this bed to go out. And then, you know, I'd already said no. And he turned around. I was like, you know, getting other people to go out. And I was thinking, wait a second, I'm in Cape Town. And this, I need to get out of the bed and go out. <laughs> you know and I got up and there you go 16 years later and two children later we are married and wow yeah thank god so maybe that was my future was in Africa who knows maybe my you know I was meant to find clearly I was meant to find my life partner there so thank god you got up my gosh right (laughs) (laughs) you know well, I think when we all probably one day and still probably already do, when we look back on our life and we think that we're going to have these giant road signs about option A or option B, the paths yeah. you know, we take, I think that we will be shocked to, to kind of realize that the, the paths our lives took were tiny decisions yes. that were spur of the moment, that were spontaneous, that changed everything yes. because Definitely that one small spontaneous decision that I could not and did not see coming changed my life. It's like these small little sliding door moments, right? These like little tiny decisions that change the entire trajectory. It's so crazy. Yes. Yes. I love that movie. By I am the way. obsessed with it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh my God. She cuts her hair. Chinese Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. It's like changed my lens on the world though. I'm like, oh my God, if I don't make that train, what is going to (laughs) happen? Right. Yeah. Right. I did not get out of bed. Who knew it was going to happen, but I did. Oh my gosh. I love that story. And you know, you just gave me goosebumps about the visceral experience of Africa. So I spent a couple months in Chad, just working at one of the hospitals there. And we had nothing, like absolutely nothing, not even an an anesthesiologist, right? Like I stayed in this mud hut, but it's so incredibly powerful. And the smell when I got off the plane, I actually went with, he was my fiance at the time. Actually, no, we weren't even engaged at the time. He was my friend, but so I guess I found my love in Africa too. But 
the smell and like the entire experience. It's like something that you cannot put into words, but it changes who you are. It's so incredible. You, it, it is. It's, it feels elemental, very visceral, that it just opens up your senses and your mind in, in a different way. And actually, you know, when I left the refugee camp, I mean, there was a lot. There's a lot of different um, emotions that you feel, I'm sure, as you know, when you are that close to such intense trauma on a daily basis, like not only physical trauma, but we're talking about intense, you know, emotional trauma of a war, you know, that I, when I finally left Africa, I, this is crazy, but I cried the entire flight. And when I arrived at JFK, my, my eyes, I'm not kidding, were swollen shut. Oh my gosh. And I I had to go to the plane laboratory to to wash them to try to get my literally pry my eyes open, and and I think it just goes to um, it, you know there's a lot of uh, emotion and going to any place I think where you are when you encounter a lot of um, deep trauma like that even if it's not your trauma but you encounter it and you try and you play a role in some some way. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next week for part two of Shannon's interview where she goes deeper into her personal struggle with endometriosis and her current advocacy initiatives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.